And we are back! Episode 9 of the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. This is it. This is the entry into the Raimi trilogy that we've all been waiting for, Spider-Man 3. Eric Burnham here, and with me is Ethan Colchimero. Sir, how you doing? I'm doing well, Eric, and uh, I'm so jazzed to dig into Spider-Man 3. There's going to be a lot for us to uncover, uh, including some of the jazz in the movie. But uh, good stuff ahead, and uh, thanks uh, to all the listeners for, for sticking with us and joining us. I can't wait to hear what you think about what we think. A couple of things I want to talk about here before we get into the discussion proper. First off, Spider-Man 2 last week, there was something that we talked about. It turned out it was off mic. Uh, we were talking about uh, when he grabbed the gigantic wall that was about to fall on Mary Jane, and it was a little bit of a nod to the final chapter. Peter says, this is heavy. The wall is heavy, but he's standing in front of Mary Jane without his mask on. It's emotionally heavy. It's a double entendre. I got a kick out of it, and I completely forgot to mention it in our finale to Spider-Man 2, because I'm an idiot. We, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and I have to, you know, while, while we're admitting... Uh, personal failings here. I never got that double entendre. Uh, and when you brought it to my attention, I absolutely loved it. I mean, I didn't think there was more that I could love about Spider-Man 2, but, but you helped me realize there is, in fact, more to love than I even realized. It's it's a clever line, and I always enjoy when you can find new things about a movie or TV show or a piece of entertainment that you've been consuming for years. Spider-Man 3, it was the highest-grossing movie of 2007. Three more Tobey Maguire-starring Spider-Mans were being planned, but even though it made all the money possible, it didn't quite get the same critical love that the first two Spider-Man got. Interesting stuff there. I mean, um, you know, not only the highest grossing film of 2007 but until far from home it was the highest grossing spider-man movie of all so yeah. even the reboot for for as much criticism as the film got or or the feeling that it derailed the series even the reboots including homecoming did not outgross spider-man 3 another interesting thing like you said there there were more Raimi, Tobey Maguire franchise films planned. And one thing I just discovered today as I was doing some research on Spider-Man 3 was that originally uh, the villains were New Goblin, Sandman, and the Vulture. And Sir Ben Kingsley was in final negotiations to play Adrian Toomes. I mean, if you can picture that in your head, it is just as picture perfect as Thomas Hayden Church's Sandman in terms of being comics accurate. Well, you know, before we get to the analysis proper, I will say one more thing, and that is this movie was the longest of the Raimi trilogy. It's par for the course now being two and a half hours for a superhero movie, but it was really long then. It was so long, in fact, running so long that Alvin Sargent was looking for a way to possibly split it into two. When he couldn't figure it out, he just said, forget it. It'll be one movie. It'll just be a little longer. <laughs> and that's how we got Spider-Man 3 as long as it was, which is not bad considering how many characters there were. And we're going to talk about some of those characters in just a second. Okay, back to our continuing discussion of Spider-Man 3. Technically, we haven't even started yet, but we got so much out of the way because there's lots to talk about. Like I said, it's the longest of the Spider-Man movies that Sam Raimi made, and uh, it starts with a lovely credit sequence. It's not my favorite. My favorite was Spider-Man 2 with the Alex Ross paintings, but it does do a great job of recapping the important events in the first two films. Yeah, also, you know, not my favorite. Uh, I, I did kind of like the way they weaved in 
little scenes from the previous films, especially when he swings in between tractor trailer. That was kind of a cool way to reintroduce us to that. It's funny when you watch all three credit sequences now, I mean, they really feel very influenced or thematically similar to the opening credit sequence from the early X-Men films. And I, I, kind of wish that they didn't, (laughs) you know, uh, it seems a little bit derivative or just a little bit just influenced by its time. I guess it kind of dates the film in my eyes, uh, all all three of the credit sequences. And clearly the second one is the most elegant and the one that holds up the best. Some of the others just seem very much uh, ruled by the effects of their time. But there's some nice touches with uh, the sand and and the venom webs taking over uh, Peter's webs. It's a nice, thematic, pretty graphic design for the opening credits, and they go for about three minutes, and then everything is turning up Milhouse. He's (laughs) doing well as Spider-Man. New York City loves him. He's got the girl of his dreams, top of his class. Early scene, he's in Kurt Connors' class, and we meet another famous Spider-Man character, Ms. Gwen Stacy. Yes, great character, great casting. Bryce Dallas Howard looks like uh, John Romita Sr. drew her. <laughs> another little piece of trivia, maybe we could call this uh, scuttlebutt or rumors, because I, I don't know how official this intel is, but everything that I had heard at the time was that Gwen Stacy was developed for the film primarily because it looked like Kirsten Dunst would not be returning. So the filmmakers felt like, okay, it's time to bring Gwen Stacy and everything was in motion when Kirsten Dunst did ultimately and thankfully make the decision to to be in the film. So now we have character arcs for Mary Jane and Gwen Stacy, which kind of adds to uh, the glut of character arcs and characters introduced. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things happening in this film, considering all the unfinished business between Peter and Harry and MJ. There were a lot of characters introduced, but as we've also discussed offline, many of them still feel maybe underutilized, not overutilized. They served their function in the story. Now, that could be a complaint, but in this case, I think that the movie is so squarely focused on its lead. Peter is the star, and he's the one that we're paying attention to, so Sandman gets to have a story, but Sandman's story is not the important story. They ratcheted that back a little bit from Doc Ock and uh, Norman Osborn a bit, but I don't hate it. It's a different way of working it out, but it's all ultimately comes down to Peter. Uh, Gwen was interesting. She was playing kind of a little bit of a reflection of Mary Jane in some ways. She was the model instead of the actress, or more the model, I should say, than than (laughs) Mary Jane wound up being. And it was interesting. She was more nerdy, understood Peter on that level. And, And her father, her father was the upstanding kind man. And Mary Jane's father was, you know, not. So yeah, she became a reflection. If Gwen had not been brought into the story, if they had decided not to use her, if if Kirsten Dunst had decided she was all in from the get-go, I wonder if some of the scenes that they wound up having with Gwen, they might have used Ursula. Mm -hmm. You know, when when Peter was throwing things into Mary Jane's face later on, about uh, about two episodes (laughs) down the line. And, you know, it's interesting when you go back through the first two films, and, and I think the first one in particular, Mary Jane always was a bit of a, a amalgam of Gwen and and MJ from the comics. They, they really kind of cherry-picked both characters and added elements of both characters to to Mary Jane in the, in the previous films. So it was an interesting thing to all of a sudden put Gwen in the mix. And um, I think the, the science nerd bond... Uh, was something that I 
had seen more in newer comics uh, and, and newer animated series more than I remember in, in the comics from the seventies uh, and you or other comic nerds can, uh, which I say endearingly <laughs> uh, can correct me if I'm wrong. As I recall, and I'm going to immediately when we're done recording, go and look in my essentials, <laughs> but I believe <laughs> uh, Gwen and Harry, they came up through Ditko, not John Romita. And really? I do believe, Oh yeah. It was Gwen, too, and I believe that she was Peter's lab partner in college. Yeah, she she appeared before Mary Jane. First appearance, Amazing Spider-Man 31. So you are correct, my friend. All righty. Now, we get to see Mary Jane is still receiving marquee billing on Broadway, although in a musical this time, which you would know this better than I, I think, possibly. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't typically just jump from straight acting to singing. Right. If you are someone who has a, a training and a background in straight theater... You're not going to wind up in a show that seems to be, from what little we see of it, sort of a a cabaret. It's it, it doesn't seem like there's any plot to this show. This sort of seems like it's three uh, young women doing a variety of songs from other musicals. Uh, we we hear Mary Jane doing what seems to be a perfectly competent version of uh, a song from from Annie Get Your Gun, but. We never saw MJ have any singing aspirations. We never saw MJ having any singing training. So it seemed like an odd choice to all of a sudden have MJ land a part in a musical review when that was never really her her bread and butter. And it's not something that just kind of casually happens on Broadway. Fair enough. Harry is there as well. Peter's watching from the front row. Harry's up in his little opera box. He's got the glasses. I liked that. And uh, he is watching MJ as his friend, but he's also watching Peter as, well, he knows he's Spider-Man and he doesn't like him. I remember, obviously, we talked in previous episodes how quickly, relatively speaking, Spider-Man 2 hit theaters after Spider-Man 1. You really didn't have to wait very long. There were two summers in between Spider-Man 2 and 3, which, again, is still really not a lot. But at the time, the way Spider-Man 2 ended, with so many threads, shall we say, uh, dangling, I could not wait to see specifically what the ending of Spider-Man 2 meant for Harry and Peter. Uh, so right off the bat, we, we get that shot of Harry watching Peter more than MJ with a very ominous and sinister expression on his face. And, and you know, we're going to get a payoff right away. I saw the smile and it's in retrospect that it looks sinister at the time. You see him smiling at Peter and going, has he forgiven Peter? If you don't know anything about the comics, you might be thinking that to yourself. The movie asks that question and answers it immediately. Peter runs into him after the show out front. Harry, I need to explain some things. <laughs> and Harry shuts him down. Tell it to my father. Raise him from the dead. That was a uh, harsh and final slamming of the door for Mr. Parker. Absolutely. It's very clear that Harry wants no part of any reconciliation. Harry wants vengeance. Peter goes back to see a Mary Jane after his run-in with Harry, and we get some science nerdery, and he's discussing theatrical acoustics. They showed him as a nerd. Well, she called him a nerd, but they showed him without saying, hey, I'm into science. I liked that. Yeah. When anybody brings up Spider-Man 3, they, they talk a lot about that there's three main villains, um, which I think you can make a case that there's really four 
adversaries in this film, the fourth one being Peter's ego. This film shows a rare instance of Peter and Spider-Man winning, and that could be a dangerous thing. I mean, in, in the sense that he is really eating his own Cheerios. He's He's very high in himself. And as a result of that, he really is not a good partner or friend or boyfriend to Mary Jane. He's just uh, a little bit too focused on himself, uh, which, you know, is is not something that we've seen uh, with Peter before. I, d- I don't think Peter knows what to do when both he and Spider-Man are winning. No, uh, he is definitely full of himself. You know what his performance reminded me of? Mm. Brainy Smurf. <laughs> Just that's well, you know, that's just that's how he came across in this movie. That's brilliant. And and it it worked out. Now, before we move on, she loved his flowers. He got there's this little tiny bouquet, which mm. is sitting right next to those are from Harry, which is this gigantic spread that's larger. Like several people needed to bring that in, most likely. Mm-hmm. I loved it. It it made me chuckle. Just after getting just shut down by Harry, Harry gets the last word in. He's not even there. Speaking of Harry, how about that segue? We cut to the new goblin lair. It has the green goblin mask sitting there. And then it had a chrome goblin mask, a hobgoblin-y goblin mask. And I really wished he would have worn that instead of... so cool. I mean, you know, as as much as people hated the Power Ranger mask, quote unquote, of the first movie, it looks so cool in Chrome and it would look so cool going after Spider-Man. Instead, he has like snowboarding goggles and a, like a balaclava looking. He looks like a snowboarder in any case. <laughs> sure. and, and and so does his, his new goblin glider. Um, and this comes to something else we were talking about. Harry has designed a new glider. He has just gone through the goblin enhancement where he got the, the superpowers where he went into the little steroid room that his father went in. His, his Apple store steroid. His uh, Apple store room. steroid room. He goes through the enhancement. Harry is not a genius. Harry needed help to get through high school science. Who is doing this for Harry? How is Harry pulling this off? Now you can argue he got smarter once he took the goblin formula. He did all this before he took the Goblin formula. What is going on? It can be considered a flaw in the film, or it could not be. It ignores some factual truths about the world that the story is set in, in favor of emotional truths. And the emotional truth is that Harry needs to bulk up and become a threat to Spider-Man in order to get to this place where the story needs him to be. And so Harry is smart enough to do it, and that's just how it works. That's how it is. And uh, the movie moves so fast, it doesn't really give you the time to ask these questions. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, it sets up that during the time in in between, and we, we talked about this with Spider-Man too, we, we jump in to where they are now and we kind of get an idea of how much time has passed based on how much they've progressed. So we can see since finding uh, his dad's uh, hidden Apple store, a lot's gone on. Harry's done a lot of work on himself to prepare for this mission of, of vengeance that his father tasked him with, uh, at least in within his own madness. So that sets up the confrontation. We know something is coming soon. And if they had just jumped right there, to a showdown with Peter and New Goblin, which was not a great villain name. Um, They could have just jumped right to a very satisfying and very, you know, cinematic and and exciting fight right there. But the, the movie takes a moment to raise the stakes even more, which I appreciated. After we're done with Harry, we move back to Peter and Mary Jane, and they're having another web chat, watching some shooting stars in the park. 
He says he loves her. He always has. They're watching the shooting stars. Very romantic. And one of them lands in comfortably near to his motorcycle. And a black, sticky mess oozes out. And that's the the, uh, Venom symbiote. Now, they were talking about doing what they did in the cartoon, which was having John Jameson, who we last saw Spider-Man 2, go on a mission to space. And that's where the symbiote comes from. They took him out and so just made it a meteor. I mean... You know, what would you call that? A Jue Machina? I mean, just even in a... It makes it the fact that this isn't an MCU type of franchise. I mean, you have a meteor that has a living alien in it mm-hmm. and it just so happens to land 20 feet away from the one person with superpowers uh, on the planet oh what are the what are the chances but again i almost prefer that they just went with it and committed to it rather than trying to gin up science that would justify the silliness it's sort of like hey you guys want venom you're gonna get venom don't ask us to think a whole bunch about how you're getting venom you you, you want it here it is Now, cut to a criminal on the lam running through the streets of the outer boroughs, and it is Flint Marco, the Sandman. They invest him with more pathos. The movie, as I had read, they were looking for the theme of the bad guy having good qualities and the good guy having bad qualities and how that kind of thing can ebb and flow. And so they they gave him reasons for being a criminal, and in this case, that reason is his daughter is incredibly ill. And he was stealing money to get her medical attention, which that was 13 years ago. And it feels uh, of the moment. You know what I mean? Oh, 100 percent. I mean, you know, we're we're hearing a lot right now about, you know, how, how much crime is influenced by financial need. And I, I think, you know, uh, unless you have lived a completely <laughs> healthy life. I think everybody understands just how quickly medical bills and, and healthcare can completely change your, your whole situation and, and uh, the choices that you have in front of you. So yeah, that, that uh, was a great um, choice. Uh, I think, you know, both we talked about how Doc Ock had much more uh, pathos, had much more um, depth uh, as a character than uh, we had seen in the comics. And uh, Flint Marco got the same treatment. He did. You saw his daughter. She had the breathing tube and he's just sitting there watching her sleep, putting all the letters she wrote him under her pillow. It was heartbreaking. Uh, and then he, he gets out of his prison jumpsuit and puts on the classic Sandman costume, the brown pants mm. and that cool green striped shirt. And holy cow, Thomas Hayden Church looked so much like a Ditko drawing. And man alive, he looked like he could beat the crap out of you. He was cut. I think <laughs> 16 months he worked out for this role. Right, right. Um, one of the things, um, uh, you know, I think, as you mentioned, the the production of the film got pushed back as they continued to try to develop the technology that would allow them to get Sandman on the screen. And Thomas Hayden Church used that additional time to just lift more heavy things. And it really shows. We cut back to Peter. He's putt, putt, putting over to Aunt May's new fantastic apartment in the sky. And he wants to tell her that he intends to propose to Mary Jane. And boy, she has advice. <laughs> she first she immediately thinks of Uncle Ben and how he proposed to her and gives a little bit of a little bit of a gut punch to Peter with we'd be married 50 years come August. Mm. Who but she gives him her blessing and she gives him a ring. There's a lot of emotion in that scene and again it comes down to Rosemary Harris doing so much with so little. 
And Aunt May doesn't get quite as much screen time as she did in Spider-Man 2, but we we don't feel her any less uh, as a presence in the film um, because of how, you know, maternal and 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 wise she is in, in, in her limited scenes and, and what Rosemary Harris does with those scenes. Now, Peter has the blessing. He's got the ring. He's on top of the world. He cannot wait. He's going over all of his plans in his head of how he's going to propose to Mary Jane putt-putting down the street. And that is when Harry Osborn decides to attack. This is the only movie that's not used spider sense. It really would have come in handy. But uh, this was, it was something. This really held up well, this fight scene. Harry and Peter going at it. And this was unique in that Peter was fighting as Spider-Man, but he was not dressed in the old red and blues. I got a huge kick out of seeing Tobey Maguire, not in a costume, crawling walls, shooting webs, swinging around. I like the way when the, the fights start, there is a question of who is attacking me. I mean, it isn't until New Goblin gets a good slash uh, and, and you see that it cuts Peter's skin and it elicits a, a level of anger from Peter of like, OK, no more Mr. Nice Guy. And, th- and then this fight is really on. But um, when I think uh, he knocks Peter into a wall, he knocks him into the wall and he, he, he grabs right. the chunk of the wall. Pulls, and Peter's still stuck on it as the wall is dropping to the ground. He's still clinging to it. And it looks so cool. It does. And, then, and then Peter goes back into it. He did. He had those bat fins. He had the bombs. He had the little the little uh, spinny bombs that chased after him. And I love that Peter called it back to the first Spider-Man movie that uh, when Norman oh, yeah. threw those at him, I hate those things. I hate those things. Great uh, line reading by McGuire. And, and uh, yeah, yeah, that was, that was just a nice touch. I really appreciated that. Peter uses his head to take Harry out. He dodges the the chasing uh, goblin pumpkin bombs, little batwing pumpkin bombs. They go back after Harry. One hits Harry in the head. He shakes it off. And he doesn't see that Peter has a tripwire webbing across mm. the alley that they're chasing down. And Harry gets knocked off his glider and has a bing, bang, boom, drop to the street below. Oof. Hits his head so hard that he is unconscious, hard unconscious. Peter tries a little uh, CPR and then gets him to the hospital. Yeah, a couple of other things about that fight scene I really like. Having the engagement ring as as a something to raise the stakes in the fight w- was really nice. I mean, there's a few moments where um, he knocks it out of Peter's hand. Peter does a few things to to try to get it back and not lose it. Um, and some of those are where he really stops pulling his punches on Harry of like, OK, this is the, the line is being crossed here. And um, you mess you messing with my lady's ring. You know, I appreciated that. Also, uh, picking up from. Uh, the few times we saw him do some web baseballs in Spider-Man 2, it was super fun to see, you know, Tobey Maguire swinging around, no suit, no mask, you know, flinging these web uh, baseballs at Harry. That was another uh, fun little moment that I appreciated in, in an overall, you know, well-executed fight scene. Um, but yeah, that uh, when we talk about some of the brutal falls that we've seen these characters take throughout the franchise, man, that Harry just really bites it hard. And, um, you know, even though uh, amnesia as a uh, plot device is so classic Hollywood that it um, it definitely has has whiskers almost. Well, it's also classic for the comic books and for the Goblin characters, Harry and Norman both, that they would get amnesia, forget who they were, forget who Peter was. He'd have to dance around worrying if they'd ever come out of it because the realistic answer to amnesia is 
Will they ever get their memory back? Maybe. Maybe is always the answer, and you never know if it's going to happen or when. And that is the only realistic thing about amnesia in any fiction. Now, uh, in between Peter getting Harry to the hospital, we see Flint Marco running away from police dogs. He actually punches a dog. The crowd did not like that in the theater, even mm. though you know, even though they feel bad for me. He can't punch a dog, man. Uh, he's on the lam. He escapes into a particle physics test facility, which is what the sign on the fence says. <laughs> he falls into a hole he can't crawl out of. It's a science experiment. They they notice that the weight in their invention has changed slightly, and they said, "Ah, it's probably just a bird. It'll yeah, fly." Not away. a lot of oversight uh, in the particle testing facility uh it doesn't give you a lot of confidence uh that they're doing everything on the up and up here and there's always the question of like they're testing it on sand what what are they what's the test i love how science is treated in the raimi movies it's just <laughs> like it's a thing that's there and it works how we need it to and mm -hmm. don't question it kids it's fine it's an amazing origin he is blown apart by this machine and mixed with the sand and he is he's disintegrated into sand right on screen and he's screaming and he's in pain and it's incredible to watch it's for a super villain origin in a 2007 hollywood movie it's actually a little bit moving it really is i mean the special effects are incredibly impressive i mean it was maybe a little dated by today's standards it'd be fascinating to see what they would do with the sandman with the current technology that we have but at the time, it was really remarkable, and it, it does hold up really well. But him sort of, uh, you know, you said it best, pulling himself back together. It was so beautifully done and so touching. Uh, he is basically willing himself back into a person, and the music is, is appropriately emotional. And then we see him see the locket with his his daughter's picture. That really gives him the emotional, the, the, the willpower to become a fully formed humanoid person again because he's not going to lose that. It was emotionally resonant and mm -hmm. it might have been the saddest moment in the movie. Him just yeah. trying to get a hold of that and his hand falling apart and his face, the indentation in the sand. It was it was something. Now, Harry in the hospital can't remember anything. He barely understands that his father is dead. That's how far back things have wiped. He sees Peter and Mary Jane. He's smiling. He's goofy. He has okay. lost all of the darkness in his heart. And he's just free as a bird, which I believe he says later on in the movie. But mm -hmm. he sees them and, uh, you know, they get a little bit of a visit in before the nurse kicks him out. And uh, Harry says, they're my best friends. I'd give my life for them. And I'm just thinking to myself, Harry, don't no. say things like that. Didn't you see Spider-Man 2? As soon as Otto says something about dying in the river, you know he's going to die in the river. Why would you say that you would give your life for your friends? Harry, you're marked for death. That's You've it. all seen the movie. You all know what's <laughs> coming. Don't yell at me about spoilers. All right, so... <laughs> Another thing that this kind of makes me think about is because um, you're you're 100 percent right in Franco committing to the role. He's not afraid to look silly or or, or look goofy, and and that's something that you know we've given Tobey Maguire a lot of credit for his earnestness and his lack of of self consciousness. Um, and and Franco brings all that to to this performance in his um, free as a bird, Harry, uh, as we, we can call it. Now, uh, we've we've gotten all that out of the way. We've gotten Harry. He's sleeping in his hospital bed. Uh, Sandman is pulling himself back together. And Peter and Mary Jane have another talk. He's got a broken door. Uh, and that's a great metaphor, visual metaphor. 
but Mary Jane is upset because she got an awful review. Mm. And Peter can't make her feel better. He doesn't understand that all he needs to do is not try to fix it, not say, well, you know, what happens to Spider-Man? And, and <laughs> no, 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 that's your, the wrong approach. You really should know better by now. I know you were a nerd, but you could date this girl for a couple of years, have some empathy, just shut your mouth and let her it, rouse. Yeah. Um, he, it's a double whammy of the, the two biggest, I think we can say male characteristics, the two, the two biggest mistakes that, that dudes often make, which is number one, uh, trying to fix a problem instead of uh, just listening and, and consoling. And number two, he makes it about him so fast that, uh, you know, it, it just makes your head spin. So, uh, so it was a double whammy there and um, it, it's hard to watch. What's worse is that Peter didn't get the biggest red flag when she said every word that that critic wrote felt like her father wrote it. It's a fictional character, and I winced. But Peter had just rolled off his back, and he doesn't know what to do with it, and he is saved by the bell, or rather the police band. It's, you know, there's trouble in the city. Spider-Man has to go. Go get him, Tiger. Eh, whatever you know she's not in the mood to be supportive because he wasn't being supportive for her she's upset he's off out the window and the symbiote is skulking around in the shadows of peter's apartment a lot of stuff happened a lot of characters were introduced and we still haven't gotten to jonah jameson yet we still haven't gotten to uh, eddie brock there's a lot left to uh, to introduce oh, you yeah. figured that would all happen in the first half hour but no so we're going to get on to some comics talk in just a second It's time to talk Harry. Harry Osborn, one of the three villains of Spider-Man 3. He was introduced in The Amazing Spider-Man number 31 back in 1965, a Stan and Steve character. And he was just a dude that Peter went to college with. A little bit of a jerk, a little bit of, a little uptight, but he came out of his shell. You know, Harry was dating Mary Jane. Peter was dating Gwen. They were, they were good friends. Um, Harry, of course, was the son of Norman Osborn, who was revealed to be the Green Goblin, who lost his memory of being a villain off and on throughout the 70s. In Spider-Man 96 through 98, uh, Harry was uh, shown as a drug addict. Popping pills, oxycodone, Harry about 40 years ahead of his time, 30 years ahead of his time maybe. He, he, he OD'd and it was so bad that it shocked the Green Goblin out of being evil for a little bit. Do you remember that? I do. I do remember that. I mean, that's really one of the um, legendary stories of, of Amazing Spider-Man and I, I think that uh, was remarkable for a lot of reasons. I think it was one of the first times a superhero comic uh, addressed addiction and i think uh, if i remember correctly that was the first uh, marvel comic to not carry the comics code seal because they told him you know if you if you, you have drugs in there then you're not going to get the seal and he's like but it's an anti-drug scene and you know there, there was no wiggle room on that and stan said we're running it without the the seal then um which of course now is not even a thing anymore but uh at the time it was pretty radical to have a superhero comic address such a heavy real world topic and uh and and to do it without uh, that seal of approval that a lot of parents would would look for before they would buy something for for their kids well harry came a long way between 31 and 96 he continued to develop he continued to become a real cornerstone of Peter's life. And in 1974, made Spider-Man 136, 100 issues, eight years or so, give or take, after his debut, he became the Green Goblin himself. He was there when Norman died. They, they retconned that. He saw the death. He saw the spearing. It kind of just sent a fragile mental state into, into crisis. He was beaten. 
He was put in jail. He didn't have any superpowers. He didn't have the goblin formula. He was just jumping onto the glider and throwing pumpkin bombs. But he was thrown in jail. He was yelling, I'm the Green Goblin, Peter Parker, (laughs) Spider-Man. And the cops were ignoring him. They found him a psychiatrist. And this is what I love. His psychiatrist hypnotizes him to learn all the goblin secrets and cure him. (laughs) And then he becomes the Green Goblin himself. I mean, what's... Was your hourly rate really not that good, buddy, that you have to become a a green spandex-wearing guy on an unstable glider? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we think now about, you know, how how difficult the physics of these things would be. I mean, I always tell uh, people... You know, when we talk about Spider-Man, his strength is his most important power. Everything falls apart about being Spider-Man if you don't have that super spider strength. Think about times in in gym class when you tried to climb the rope. Uh, I mean, if he was holding his own weight as he was swinging around or even climbing up walls, he'd gas out after 15 or 20 minutes that, that, that you'd get Spider-Man 15 minutes a day. And the same is true of the Goblin, where if, if you're not supernaturally strong, you're not gliding around 30, 40, 50, 60 feet in the air, flinging pumpkin bombs. You're not you're not doing any of that stuff just as a, a guy who, you know, occasionally takes karate class at the Y it's you got to be next level it's true harry forgot everything for a while but is later reminded that his father was the green goblin and that he was the green goblin he's blackmailed by the first hobgoblin who is looking for more green goblin secret lairs and when Mm. harry when harry doesn't know of anymore when he realizes that he's cleaned them all out he just says okay well blackmail over but the second hobgoblin uh, jason masondale harry suits up has the green goblin to fight him and consider as you do hero as you do that's right considers becoming a superhero and peter says uh you know maybe that's a, well spider-man uh, that's probably a bad idea there's a lot of baggage with that costume you might want to not try to be a hero harry does uh, over the years several times pop up in the goblin costume to do superhero-y things to help peter or to protect his family which it's an interesting concept, the Green Goblin being a superhero. They did try to do that uh, later on with Phil Urich in the 90s, mm. the new Green Goblin. Do you remember that? I don't. That must have been during a, a, a brownout for my comic reading. I, I did not know about that particular Green Goblin. It was uh, the nephew of Ben Eric, uh, the Daily Bugle reporter that uh, is familiar with Daredevil. And he he fell into some goblin formula and he has his his gig is he has a disorienting laugh, kind of like the creeper. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he had the costume and he was uh, he was making a go of it as a superhero and he had his own title. Oh, wow. But, uh, you know, they later they made him a villain later. They made him a new hobgoblin. He had wings instead of a, a glider and. Dan Slott did that. That was a whole thing. Anyway, that was what they did with the Green Goblin as a hero. But Harry was a hero for a little bit, and it was an interesting concept to see that image doing good. It's not really a, a superhero look. <laughs> right. No, no, it's not It's not something you wouldn't see, uh, th- that face and that outfit, uh, you know, if you're in a moment of, of distress. Uh, if, if you see that figure coming towards you, you're just like, oh, 
what now? So it's 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 not a good superhero look. No. So we get to this is about 1989, 1990, and the Inferno crossover from the X Men titles, uh, Demons on Earth, mm. and uh, this messes with Harry's mind as it would. <laughs> yeah. And he 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 starts to go crazy again. He starts to go evil again, and he starts psychologically tormenting Peter, which he was an emotionally abused kid a little bit. His his father not entirely having time for him, sometimes loving him, sometimes not. You know, all over the place. And that's what he throws back at Peter. All kinds of psychological torment, but he cannot bring himself to kill his friend, which I like that. He he, he wants to occasionally get up to that, but he, he just can't cross that line. This is the point where he finally takes the goblin formula. He has been mm. non-superpowered character this entire time fighting Spider-Man, <laughs> <laughs> fighting other supervillains, fighting demons. And now he takes the goblin formula for the super strength. This goes back to our craziness of just how soap opera this thing is. He kidnaps his wife, his son, Oof. and his brother-in-law. His brother-in-law was also a supervillain, the Molten Man. Right. Mark Raxton, the Molten Man, uh, one of the later Ditko uh, villains. And so, yeah, he, he kidnaps him and uh, he's wanting them to be a family. And uh, it's just, it's weird. It's crazy. He's out of his mind. Spider-Man is alerted to this, I think, if I remember the notes, that it was the Molten Man who got the word out. He intervenes. He defeats Harry, turns him into the police, but they can't build a case. So he's released. Our bad. Here, here's your glider. Enjoy your day. All of this basically builds up to a fantastic story. Do you remember Spectacular Spider-Man 200? Uh, J.M. DeMatteis wrote it. Salvasiama drew it. And Harry is going to end it all. He is going to capture Peter, which he does. Paralyzes Peter. And he's got him in a house. He said, this is all ending. We're going to go out together. At this point, he's taken a more powerful goblin formula. So he's as strong as Spider-Man for a change. Gets one over on him. And he says, I'm blowing up this house, his father's house, blowing it up. And Spider-Man and the Green Goblin are done. I need to pause my babbling here because there was a scene earlier in the same book that I really appreciated. Harry is angry at Peter, but he still loves Mary Jane. Dear friend, as the Green Goblin, he takes her to the top of the bridge where Gwen died. Mm -hmm. Pulls off his mask and says, I would never hurt you. Peter and I have issues. You and I do not. And, and that's all it is. Peter and Mary Jane are married at this point. Harry knows that you really can't, you really can't have that kind of a conversation with a married couple, a loving married couple. Right. But they did get the scene in there and I did appreciate that. And that pays off later when Mary Jane comes looking and there's the bombs going and Harry gets them out of the building. And she's like, well, what about Peter? You can't leave him in there. And Harry's just like, but I, I just can't, I mean, and he can't face Mary Jane and leave Peter to die. He can't follow through with his plan. So he goes in there and he rescues Peter, who cannot move, rescues Spider-Man, I should say, as the building blows up. And he gets out there and just as Spider-Man gets his mobility back, Harry, the goblin formula, uh, kills him. And this is a silent scene in the book. They reconcile and he dies and Peter is destroyed and it was all done silently. It was beautifully done by Bissema. It's one of my favorite Spider-Man stories. I remember buying and reading that issue several times. I was way out of the loop. Comics were one of my ways of keeping in touch with the real world. I was living in rural Alaska at the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. It was it was great. It was fantastic. It's one of my favorite Spider-Man stories. Spectacular Spider-Man number 200. It has not been collected anywhere. But folks, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend that you do. Now, uh, the Goblin formula healed him and saved him from death in the same way that they retconned <laughs> Uh, Norman being saved from death, being, you know, skewered by the glider. Uh, so Harry lives. 
And then things get complicated over the next 20 years. Norman comes back and he's more evil. He's crazier. He's now just, he's not like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Norman is nice. Green Goblin is evil. No, it's just, he's evil all the time. And he's Uh sadistic evil. And he gets skeevy evil in ways that I'm not going to discuss. Thank you for that. (laughs) You know, I I can say that in general, I mean, this was something with with comics. And I understand, uh, you know, when when you look at the sheer number of just take Spider-Man, you can almost take any of your major super characters, the sheer volume of stories that need to be generated monthly. Multiply that by 50, 60 years. One of the one of the themes that just really uh, I got fatigued on was uh, and you, you brought it up a few times in, in the Goblin comics recap is just like emotional uh, torture, uh, mm-hmm. emotional anguish, mental health attacks. <laughs> and it starts to get disturbing, uh, especially when you get into some of the skeevy things that that we, we know the newer resurrected Norman uh, ha- had attempted or, or had done. Uh, and it's just not what I look for from superhero comics. I mean, they hint in the first Raimi film, uh, you see Norman uh, talking about hurting MJ in, in, in you know, very gross and, and uh, ominous ways. He kind of threatens Peter with that. And that gives Peter the, the sort of, uh, you know, jaws of death strength to, to get the upper hand. Um, and that's that's like about all I can handle. <laughs> And all, you know, when you talk about all the the Harry Osborne stories where, um, you know, there's mental health issues and mental anguish and mental cruelty and and all these kinds of of things, I think, you know, it was written at a time when we really were not as enlightened about mental health. But I I have a very low threshold for those kinds of, uh, you know, story uh, themes or or storytelling techniques. We talked about this before. before we started recording and it is the most heinous thing that harry osborne ever did in the comics the worst possible evil he inflicted on us was in 1969 when he drew a mustache and it is a horrifying mustache it's like parentheses around the side of his mouth it's not quite a fu manchu it doesn't meet in the middle it's just some strange kind of bulldog looking mustache and he had a turtleneck and an amulet go with it and it was just hairy no. Now I have to be honest that I was not familiar with with Harry's mustache, and I did an image search for it earlier today when you told me about it, and I was horrified. It almost seems like a like a joke. Like they couldn't have put that in there for real, could they? It it, it must have been uh, something that somebody drew on an old comic, you know, to to make people laugh on on Twitter or something. But no, he really had this just horrifying mustache that is absolutely the worst evil that any Osborne has inflicted uh, on on anybody. Um, You you couldn't ever put this in a movie or or, uh, an animated show. Uh, It it would probably get uh, censored uh, or canceled. It's just (laughs) I motion to have our uh, uh, at Webhead podcast uh, Twitter feed tweet this out uh you know after this episode airs because it's it's a monstrosity it truly is it was not great but authentic to 1969 (laughs) people did have this kind of mustache and boy now before we move on to the final segment we are going to talk about our 
Twitter poll from friendly neighborhood webhead Twitter account, which is Webhead Podcast. Who overall was the best goblin-related antagonist for Peter Parker? Your options were Norman, Harry, or a non-Osborne of some sort, which would include Bart Hamilton or one of the Hobgoblins. Norman wins. Norman wins with 50% of the vote. Harry got 40% of the vote. 10% went to the non-Osborne of some sort. I was actually surprised about this. I know I voted for Harry, and I believe you voted for Norman. And- I did. Yeah. And now I have a little bit of um, you know, regret, maybe, because, I mean, Hobgoblin probably is my favorite goblin-y character. So maybe I should have gone non-Osborne. But really, you know, we wouldn't have any goblin-y characters without Norman kind of starting it all. So I don't know. I don't know. Well, it was and, Harry did, <laughs> and Harry did bring the mustache to the works. But no, really, right. the reason I picked <laughs> Harry was that Norman, yes, he was his best friend's father. And so he did have a connection to Peter. But Harry was his best friend. There was a love and a hate and a closeness that he just didn't have with Norman that made the fight more painful. And that's why I feel that he was the best overall goblin. Harry could hurt Peter in a way that Norman simply could not. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, factored into my decision. And then, you know, I mean, Norman did come back later and he was just straight up super evil and did creepy things that I wish writers would not have written. Things that we, again, will not be talking about because, ugh. Uh, But uh, Norman does win this poll. So we're going to move on and say our goodbyes right after this. Okay, it's a goodbye from the Friendly Neighborhood Webhead Podcast. Before we end the show... We're going to talk about Coach's question, which kind of got derailed by a million different bits of craziness in the world. But uh, Ethan had a trivia question, and I think it's about time that we answer that trivia question, sir. So the question was, Spider-Man in 2002 broke box office records with an opening weekend of $114.8 million. That was the first time in box office history that a movie made more than a hundred million dollars in one weekend so the question was how long did it hold the record and what movie broke its record so the answer was four straight years before another film had a bigger opening weekend and that film that broke the record was drumroll Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. All righty. Well, now we have resolution to that after a month. Now we're going to talk about our Twitter poll, which we just revealed in the Harry Osborne section. We're going to be continuing that at Webhead Podcast over on Twitter. We'll have a poll or maybe even two every week, and we'll give you some results on the podcast. And that's it. We'll, <laughs> we'll be back in a week. We'll talk about where you can find us, but first, next week, you're going to find us talking the second 30 minutes of Spider-Man 3. We'll also be talking about Venom, the symbiote, Eddie Brock, Matt Gargan, Flash Thompson, the times where he was a villain, the times where he was an anti-hero, the times when he was an outright hero. All of that next week. Meanwhile, you can find us, as I said, on Twitter, Webhead Podcast. You can reach us by email, cinemaspidey at mail.com. And you can always share the podcast with your friends, anchor.fm slash webheadpodcast. We're done for another week. Sir, do you have any parting words? Just want to thank everybody for listening. Thank everybody for supporting. Please leave us a review wherever you listen to the Webhead podcast. Tweet us, message us, uh, mail us. Uh, we, We want to hear from you. So thanks, True Believers, for listening, and we'll see you next time. Enough said.